So if you would do this for me this morning, turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. This is where I want to begin. 1 John 4.15. In this text, the Apostle John tells us that true believers are uniquely marked out by faith in Christ, the Son of God, by love for God, and by obedience to God, to His commands. Look what it says at 4.15 with me. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him, and He in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar And it says, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In general, we can say this. If you love God, you will want to obey all his commands. There are many places I could take you in the New Testament that talk of God's commandments There are an abundance of places in the New Testament that we see commandments given to Christ's followers. But the first and foremost commands that we are given are here in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Every Christian, everyone who has been born of God, are called to keep these commands. We are called to obey them. Verse 19, it says, Go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, we call this passage the Great Commission, and that's what it is. But within this Great Commission, there is a great command. It is one that all true believers want to follow. It's a divine command, and it's the divine command of water baptism. Once you have been born again, this should be the one command that you see that is most predominantly able to testify that there has been a change in your life publicly to the world around you, and you should desire this with all your heart. It should be something, once you come to grasp it, once you understand what God has done for you in Christ, you should want to testify to it publicly, openly, for God's glory. 
So what I want to do this morning is I want to try to make it clear why that is the case, why this command was even given in the Great Commission. Basically, it's this. This command that God has given to us in the Great Commission was given to help identify Christ's true disciples. And it does that because this is an act of obedience that testifies that you not only have been saved by Christ, but you recognize who Christ is as not only your Savior, but your Lord. And in this act of obedience, you're illustrating the work that he completed to bring you into his kingdom, to bring you into his body, the church. You're illustrating your conversion. And that's not all that you're illustrating. You're also illustrating your submission your obedience to the one who is now your master and your Lord, which is Jesus Christ. In that way, baptism is a divine testimony. I think we could all agree to that this morning. But what I think sometimes we forget to think about is not only is the act of baptism a divine testimony, so is the way it is administered. The word baptize in the New Testament in the Greek is baptizo, which simply means to immerse or submerge. And this is significant. God has given us this word to illustrate something very precise, very important about this mode in which we are to be baptized. It is to be a a divine illustration of what has transpired internally in us so that we can show it externally to the world around us. The divine mode here of baptism we know in Scripture was actually ordained by Christ, and it was also observed by the apostles of Christ. And that divine mode of baptism was by immersion, meaning to go under, to be submerged. We see the divine act here and the divine mode of baptism in Christ's own baptism in Mark, Mark chapter 1. Just turn the page if you're still there in Matthew, and you'll be at Mark 1, verse 9. It says, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And then notice verse 10. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. So at this point, we can certainly see that this mode of baptism, of immersion, is something that God blessed in the Lord Jesus Christ's own life. We see that there was a way which God wanted to illustrate a complete cleansing, a complete picture of what he would do to us through Christ's atoning work on the cross. We also see in Acts that this was observed by the apostles, this mode of baptism by immersion. In Acts 8, 34, it says this, And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say about himself or about someone else? What's happened here is this eunuch is traveling along. He's reading a scroll from Isaiah, and he's confused. He doesn't understand what's going on. God picks up Philip, imports him into the situation, and all of a sudden, Philip is there opening his mouth and beginning to explain what the scriptures have to say about Jesus from Isaiah. It says in verse 35, Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, meaning a body of water, okay? 
And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down where? Into the water. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. So he goes into the water to be immersed. Now, this was the New Testament pattern. This is what the early church practiced. It changed very quickly, sadly, after the first century, but it began to actually be something that we saw developed in the New Testament and practiced in the early church. And here's what a a man who did not practice baptism by immersion had to say about what the New Testament teaches about the mode of baptism. He said this, The word baptize means to immerse, and it is certain that immersion was practiced by the early church. That was John Calvin who said that. He recognized that the New Testament taught that the mode by which God has blessed the ordinance of baptism was by immersion. You see, the mode of baptism, as revealed in Scripture, I think was divinely ordained, as I said earlier, to paint an outward picture of what God has done to us inwardly, spiritually, at regeneration. Look with me at Romans 6. We see this inward transformation talked about in Romans 6, and it is expressed in outward ways through baptism. But this is talking about the inward immersion into Christ, the spiritual immersion into Christ that we picture, portray, symbolize in water baptism by immersion. It says this in 6.3, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, immersed into Christ. That's what it means. Into his death, we're baptized, it says, into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in, his, in a death like this, like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion or lordship over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now, Romans 6 shows us that inwardly or spiritually, right, we are immersed into Christ at regeneration. And there we are united to him through his death and his resurrection, That is what our outward testimony is in baptism. When we do this by immersion, that's what we're illustrating outwardly. We're showing the world publicly that we have died with Christ at the cross. And the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God who was given up for us. We live through his resurrection. It's illustrated as we go into the water and as we come out of the water As we go under the water, we symbolize our death with Christ at the cross, our union with Jesus at the cross. And if you're a believer, you must grasp this concept. When Christ Jesus died upon the cross, 
The sins of all his people were laid upon him for us. He died our death, took our place. And what we're showing in baptism is when we go into the water, we're showing that we died with Christ. We were placed on that cross with Christ. And we have went down into that water to display that we are now dead in Christ with him at the cross. And then we rise up out of that water to symbolize that we have a new life in Christ's life through his resurrection life. And we publicly confess that in the waters of baptism. We are publicly confessing that we have a new life. And the sheer act of being obedient to baptism testifies to that because you're testifying you have a new longing, a new desire to honor the one who died for your sins and submit to his lordship over your life. See, what I want you to understand this morning, for all of us to understand this morning, is this. This solemn pledge of baptism is one that you made before God. You make it before men as well, but you're making it to God. That your life that you lived is no longer yours. It is Christ. You have a new life in Him. When you go into the water, it displays that you testify that you died with Christ. And when you come out of the water, you display and testify that you now want to live in obedience to your Savior. And that way, baptism is a public declaration of your regeneration, your salvation. Baptism is a public witness to your faith, not only in Jesus as your Savior, but as Jesus as your Lord and Master. It's a public witness that you have submitted to His saving grace, and you want to walk in obedience and follow His directions. And understand this, baptism does not precede salvation. Baptism follows regeneration. It follows salvation. It it cannot precede it because it cannot obtain it. An obedient act cannot bring you closer to God. Because you are in Christ, you want to be obedient to God. But the act itself cannot endear you to God. It will not save you. Baptism is as some teach, is a means of salvation. That is not a biblical concept. It cannot be done in order to gain salvation. It's also not a way to enter into the church. Both your salvation and your entrance into the body of Christ are both done by faith in Christ's work alone, not in any work that you would do, not an outward act, not in even an act of obedience. It will follow those who have been regenerated, though. We need to understand that. Though it cannot save you, if you are saved by Christ, it will mark you. It will identify you that you want to be obedient to the one who redeemed you. That you want to go into the waters to testify to his great love and his great grace for you, not to obtain it. It's something that we are commanded to do, as Paul mentioned earlier. And everyone who is saved, I believe, once they come to the knowledge of what this represents, they want to do it. If there is no desire for baptism, I would ask you to examine your heart to see if you're in the faith. It is something that every Christian, once they come to the understanding of what this represents, they would want to long for it. They would want to pursue it, find every means possible to obtain it, even if we have to buy a stock tank at Tractor Supply or whatever it was, you know. Whatever it takes to make this happen, they'll want that. 
And, and I, I fear today that sometimes we don't want to be obedient as we ought because we don't reflect upon the work of Christ as often as we ought. So I, I hope this morning that you'll be freshly amazed by the obedience and the desire of those who are being baptized here today before us. And I also hope that you will be reminded of the confession that you made, your confession of faith in Christ and your commitment that you declared to Christ, that you would submit to his lordship in the waters of baptism. And I pray today as as you hear those who are going to be baptized give their own personal testimonies to what God has done in their soul, I pray that it would cause all of us in this room to examine both our confession and our commitment to Christ. I fear sometimes that many of us, if not all of us, we let our confession and our commitment to Christ waver. We allow the love of the world, we allow the trials of life to extinguish the fire and the passion we had at the time that we were baptized. And I pray that their baptism and their testimony will actually revive that and renew your faith and revive your commitment that you made when you were first amazed by God's forgiving grace. In order to help you do that, I want you to think about and consider a passage out of Acts 2. Now, it's, an, it's a controversial passage because it's been contextually misrepresented. In Acts 2, 36-38, I want to look at this with you and try to help you grasp some of the, the gravity and the joy of what it means to be able to make a public witness for Christ through baptism. This text is often misrepresented because they neglect the context due to one word translated in verse 38, the word for, which should actually be contextually translated as because. Let me read the passage, 236 to 38. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Then it says this. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for or because or in response to the forgiveness of your sins, and you, are, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Contextually, this could not mean that you're being baptized for salvation. Contextually, this tells us basically this, that Peter's saying baptism takes place because, because you recognize that the forgiveness of your sins has been obtained through Jesus Christ in response to his great love for you and his forgiveness. This is why you want to be baptized. This is what's driving you to obey this commandment. It drives us there because this commandment, this commandment to be baptized is something that's going to publicly symbolize the joy that you have because of Christ's regenerating grace. It's declaring that all of your sins have been washed away. The waters of baptism do not wash away sins. Because you know that your souls have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. You have no condemnation Therefore, you want to testify to that publicly, openly, and boldly through the waters of baptism. 
You're declaring in these waters that your sins have been washed away by faith in what Christ did. His life, His death, His resurrection. And what you're doing is you're identifying with Christ's victory when you come out of that water. You're saying, it has been paid for. I am a new creation in Christ because of Jesus' saving work. And in that way, baptism is a testimony to the greatness of God's work in our hearts that symbolized outwardly through a public confession of faith in baptism. I want you to understand that every baptism that you find in the New Testament is carried out with the same kind of joy and response that you see there in Acts 2. It's a joyful response to God's saving work. Every baptism you see is actually connected to the joyful response to having heard the word of the gospel. In the New Testament, we see examples of that. We not only see how to baptize through immersion and what it should re- represent, which is the death and the, the death with Christ and the life with Christ, we also see a divine order laid out for us for who should be baptized and when they should be baptized. Look with me at Acts 2.39. You're already there. It says here that those who received Peter's message first, right? Those are the ones who were then baptized. First they heard, they believed, and they responded through obedience and baptism. Look what it says in verse 39. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who, what's it say? Received the word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So after hearing the gospel, conversion takes place. Regeneration occurred, and it produced obedience to God's commands. That's the New Testament order. Look on down into Acts, go to Acts 18. We see this divine order repeated here again in Acts 18, verse 5. I really want to stress this, not because I think that anyone here believes you're saved by baptism, but I want you to understand this so that you can see how you should respond to baptism. After hearing the words of Jesus, after hearing the gospel of God's grace to us, baptism didn't have to be something that was forced on the people. It was the joyful response of those who have been set free from their sins through Christ. They wanted to outwardly testify to this in whatever way was possible. And there was one way possible, the way God ordained, which was through baptism, a public testimony of the work of Christ. We see that order here laid out in verses 5 to 8. It says, When Silas and Timothy arrived in Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word. There, pay attention to that. Testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Messiah. He's giving a reason for his hope. Okay? And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and he said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. So belief comes first. They heard the gospel, belief in the gospel, believed in the Lord, 
together with his entire household. The entire household heard the gospel, believed. This is requiring intellectual ability here. They believed the gospel. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. See that order there? They were baptized after they heard the gospel and believed in it. Let me just ask you all this question this morning. Is that the way you responded after hearing and believing the gospel? Did you want to be baptized? Did you pursue that? At one time in your life when you were regenerated, when you know that God had saved your soul, was there this this passion deep inside you to do whatever Christ commanded you? I'm sure there was. But if I ask you that today, is that passion still there? Do you still have that drive, that desire to do whatever Christ commands because He saved you according to His Word? We might fall short, but I pray that when you see these people being baptized today, this will renew your love for Christ. You'll get back to your first love. And you'll be glad to do whatever God calls you into because He has saved you by His grace. This baptism that they testified to was simply one that testified to their joy and their love for Jesus for regenerating their soul. These people understood the gospel, though that's very important for us to grasp. They first understood it, then they trusted in Christ because of it, and then they obeyed the command. We see this pattern repeated in another place. Let me take you there, two places. Acts 10 and Acts 16. These are common places that people will take you that teach that you can be baptized into the church by being baptized as an infant. They miss the context. They miss the very divine order that God has given. And I, I point this out not to point out the problem with infant baptism. I point this out to emphasize the excitement and passion of those who want to be obedient in baptism that we see in these texts. In 1042, this is Cornelius' household. It says this, as Peter is preaching here, it says, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify. So we have preaching and we have testifying that he is the one appointed by God, speaking of Jesus, to be judge of the living and the dead. And then he goes further. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness. We have belief preceding forgiveness of sins through his name. Verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold baptism, water rather, for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. So the baptism came after hearing the word, after hearing God extolled, hearing gospel truths. Then the command came and they were excited to obey it. Look at chapter 16 in Acts. 16.29 down to verse 34. This is after Paul has been imprisoned and was divinely rescued. 
And the man who had imprisoned him, the jailer, was now desperate. He didn't know what to do because his life was at risk because he had let the prisoner loose in his mind, though it was God. And he was terrified. Verse 29 says, And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be rescued, saved? They said, They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. He had believed and was baptized. His family had heard the gospel and were baptized. Belief precedes baptism here. It's a very important concept to grasp. And I think it's important because of this. Throughout the New Testament, this is the pattern. Preaching the word, explaining the word, obedience to the word in baptism. It's always that pattern. And I think it's that way because In this pattern, we're seeing an illustration of the power of the gospel. To take a dead sinner, a rebel at heart, and change him to the degree that he now wants to be obedient publicly, even though it could cost him his life. And that was what was at risk with the jailer. The jailer was at first afraid that the Roman rulers would put him to death for losing prisoners. Then he actually is willing, after he is converted, after hearing the word, he is willing to then publicly declare that he is now a follower of Jesus, which could cause him to die. There's a radical change that just transpired there. He is no longer afraid of death because he died with Christ at the cross. And he wanted to display that in a public way. The power of the gospel is displayed in the order that we see here in the New Testament. And that power is revealed to us in one more place I want to take you. In Colossians 2. The order that we see, I think, in those early acts of the church, as I said, I think simply illustrate the power of the gospel that's revealed to us here in this text. I want to read to you verses 11 to 15. When it says, In Him, it's speaking of Jesus. In Him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Understand what's going on in verse 11. When Christ was on the cross, it was as if he was cut off. He was separated because our sins were being placed upon him. Our curse fell upon Jesus. He was set apart. He was cut off. And it says that we are with him at the cross. Though we were cut off in Christ, we're going to be grafted back in. Look what it goes on to say having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, all of our guilt, all of our sins were placed upon Christ and he was cut off because of us. He was under the wrath of God because of us. And in 
our testimony in baptism, we're testifying that he didn't stay cut off. Because the power of the resurrected Christ is at work in all those who follow him. Every testimony that you see today is a testimony to that. Verse 15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In verses 12 to 13, I think we see a great illustration of the power that's illustrated anyway in baptism. The dead are now made alive. And baptism illustrates that. It illustrates our regeneration. We were once dead in sin, and now we are alive in Christ. Verses 14 and 15, I think, show us that we were once guilty, wretched sinners, defiled by our lifestyle, our thoughts. But now in Christ... We are guilt-free, and baptism now illustrates this new position that we have because of Christ. We went from being a sinner to being called a saint. It doesn't mean we don't continue to sin. We struggle with sin. But we have been legally declared righteous through the works of Christ and Christ alone. Now, look down at uh, three, chapter 3, verse 1. Let me read this to you. If you recognize that you were once dead and now you're alive in Christ, if you recognize that you were once guilty and now you're guilt-free, and you illustrate that through baptism, I think you're actually doing what he's talking about here. You're responding to the glorious work of Christ in a public way. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now... You must put them all away. Well, listen, I can't put them all away unless I have the power to put them all away. Where does that power come from? It comes from the resurrected power of Christ that now dwells in me. That's how I pursue obedience. That's how I pursue holiness. When the people who are baptized today come out of that water, they are testifying to you that that is their desire. That will be their commitment to God and before you. And they are making themselves publicly a witness of this, that they're going to do this and we are to hold them accountable to their public profession of faith. He says on down here in verse 9, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule or umpire your motives. Let it rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell, dwell in you richly. 
teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. See, baptism illustrates your regeneration. It illustrates your new position. But it also, I think, illustrates your submission. That you who were once a rebel, as you read in the book of Colossians, you can go back and see that we were once dead in our sins. You who were once a rebel to God are now longing to be obedient to God. And you want to be obedient this morning, those who are being baptized, through this act of public testimony. You reveal that you are desiring to be submitted to the Lordship of Christ over all aspects of your life from this day forward. And we will hold you accountable to this profession. I hope this this somewhat helps you understand what's going on in the waters of baptism this morning. I hope it helps you see that obedience to Christ's commands in baptism are a divine illustration that testifies to our union with Christ and His Lordship over our life. That's a concept we don't think about much in our culture anymore. We talk a lot about Jesus being our Savior, but very little about Him being our Lord and Master. When you make a public profession of faith that you have truly believed upon the Lord Jesus, think about who you said you believe upon. The Master. The one who has the rights over your life. He has given you life. New life through His death. And I pray that this service helps us remember that this morning. I hope it reminds all of us of how precious our union with Christ truly is. And I pray that also reminds us that we are to live our lives in ongoing obedience to Christ. It was not just a one-time thing we did at baptism. As Christians, we are called to be obedient slaves of Christ. He is our master, and he is a good master. We've never seen a benevolent dictator, but he is one. He is loving, and he is able to direct our lives for our good and for his glory. I hope that this somehow reminds you of that this morning. I also hope that if you have been baptized, you'll consider the testimonies that are given this morning and renew your own testimony to God. Renew your own confession to God. Remember the confession that you made the day that you were baptized. Remember the day that you said, I want to be identified with Jesus Christ in baptism. Remember that solemn pledge you made to God and before men. And ask yourself, Am I walking now in the same joy and passion that I had at the beginning? And I pray that their testimonies will help you to truly examine that. Not find condemnation in it, but find a renewed spirit. and A sense of repentance. That you want to turn from what you're doing, the time that you're wasting, and turn in faith to what God has commanded you to do as a Christian. We are light here in this world. We are to be his witnesses, his ambassadors, not just one time in baptism, but every day as we walk through life. And I pray that you'll be encouraged to do that as they make their professions this morning. What I want to do right now is ask all those who are going to be baptized to come forward and sit here on this front row. And as they come, I want you to consider what they're coming to do this morning. These folks are here today to testify publicly that they have heard the gospel, they have believed the gospel, and they are now joyfully desiring to follow Jesus' commands that magnify the gospel. 
They are testifying that they want to be baptized and identify with Jesus publicly and glorify God here in this service this morning. And they want to do that through their public confession and their testimony of faith in the waters of baptism. So what I want to do right now is ask everyone here to bow with me in prayer and pray specifically for these five individuals here this morning that are going to be baptized. It's, it's astounding to see that God has brought so many people together at one time to be baptized in this service. And I think it is a great mark of his grace upon their lives and upon our church to be blessed by their witness this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for each and every person here. We thank you, Lord, for Sam and for Skylar and for Brett and Kyle and Haley. God, I pray that you would just fill their hearts and their minds with truth to the point that they cannot make one public profession today, but public profession every day as they walk out of this place. Lord, I pray that you would give them strength and courage to give their testimonies today, to honor the work of Christ in their lives, and to bring much praise to your name. Thank you for all this. In Christ's name, amen.